Um, it was 10 weeks ago today that we started this series on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and I just want to thank all of you um, for walking through the series of messages with me. Um, many of you have shared with me things that uh, the Lord has taught you and is still teaching you, and the Holy Spirit is leading you in um, as a result of this study, and I'm uh, very grateful for that, and I want you to know along with you, I have also been encouraged and challenged and learned new things um, as the Lord is challenging me with those things. And um, I just love sharing God's word together with you guys. And, um, and so coming to the end of this series, um, in reflecting on everything that we've learned, everything that we've talked about through uh, these several weeks and looking at these verses in depth, um, I think we have a lot in common with the crowd that was sitting on the hill that day hearing these teachings of Jesus. Because the Beatitudes would have been a shocking revelation to them. And as I was thinking about all of them as a whole, which is, which is how we have to study and understand them, and I thought about what it would be like to have been on that hill that day, to have been those people thinking the way they thought, having the ideas that they had, and hearing the words of Jesus. I feel like it would have been a shocking revelation to them. This whole Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount collectively basically is Jesus saying to them, the kingdom that you want is not the same as the kingdom I've come to bring. The kingdom that you want, the kingdom that you're looking for. And that would have shocked them. And I think we need to hear that same thing from Jesus because we like things the way we like them, don't we? We like our lives to be the way we like them. We like our circumstances to be the way we like them. We like our relationship with God to be the way we like it to be. And many people, even within the church right now, have ideas about what the kingdom of God is like. And Jesus is saying to them, as he's saying to this crowd, as he's saying to us, the kingdom that you want, the kingdom that you're looking for, is not the same as the kingdom I've come to bring. Because it's vitally important that we understand what the kingdom of Jesus is and what it looks like. And that's why we've studied this, because it's given us a picture of what the kingdom of God is. Because something bad will happen if we, as followers and believers and professors of the name of Jesus, if we have a wrong idea of what the kingdom of God is and what it is like, and we don't understand it, we will create our own kingdom. If we don't understand God's kingdom, we will build our own, won't we? And that's bad enough. But those of us in the church can go further. If we don't understand Jesus' kingdom, we will build our own. And we are also prone to build our own kingdom and then call it his. And that's even worse. It's one thing for us to build our own kingdom, but it's another thing to build our own kingdom and then to say that it's the kingdom of God when it really does not represent it. And so I'm grateful that you've, that you've gone through this with me, and I pray that the Lord is teaching us about what his kingdom is really like because the kingdoms that you and I build won't last. The kingdom that Jesus rules and brings is the only kingdom that will last. It's the only one that will stand. Anything that I build, any kingdom of my own that I build by my own effort will crumble. Whatever you build on your own, no matter how good you think it is, how moral, how religious you think it is, it will crumble in the end. Jesus' kingdom is the only one that lasts. And that is why Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount in a specific way. We've been focused on the beginning, which is the introduction to the sermon. Before we get into verse 10 of chapter 5, I want us to go to the end of the sermon. And I want you to see what Jesus says at the very end. The last thing he says before he walks away from that crowd. It's in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. So this is the conclusion to his sermon on the mount. 
And I think it will make sense. The beginning and the end will make sense to us. Verse 24 says, Therefore, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. I think often we as Christians will read Matthew 7, this passage about building your house on the rock versus building it on the sand. And we read that and we take it to mean that when trouble comes into our life, that when we, we have storms and circumstances, bad things that happen to us, if we've built our house on the rock instead of the sand, we'll be able to endure it. We'll be able to get through it. We'll be able to get through the bad times. And, and if we don't, then we're going to suffer consequences, destruction. Those things are going to overtake us. And, and there's probably a, a, an appropriate context and lesson in that. But when we think about what Jesus is saying all throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and the way he's going to end the Beatitudes with what he's going to say about persecution, I think when we read this passage, what we're seeing is Jesus isn't just talking about circumstance. He's talking about judgment. And he basically says, if you don't understand the kingdom that I'm explaining to you now, and you build your own kingdom, instead of building on the foundation of the kingdom that I've come to bring, when judgment comes, in the end, your kingdom will fall. Your kingdom will collapse. Everything that you've built thinking that it's by your effort, he's talking to these Pharisees and these Jews who are trying to to build their resume to God. And he says, you are building something that on the outside and maybe even on the inside looks beautiful and well-built and put together. But in the end, when the judgment of God comes, it's gonna crumble. It's gonna collapse. And Jesus says it doesn't just collapse, but you notice he says it collapses with a great crash. It falls apart. It's not just about getting through hard times. It's about surviving the judgment of God. And the only way we can survive that is if we've built our relationship with him on the rock of the kingdom that Jesus says he's come to bring. So it is vitally important that we understand the kingdom of God. And this is why we've been studying this. This is why we have gone through this series. I want you to notice too about this story that Jesus says about the houses, do you notice that Jesus makes no distinction about the two houses? They're exactly the same as far as we know. It's not that the house that gets built on the sand is shabby or not well put together or not made of good material or not made to look beautiful on the inside and outside. He makes no distinction. I picture and I believe what Jesus describes here are two houses that are identical in, in look, in in structure, all of the things he says, it's, it's not about that. It's all about what you build it on. It has nothing to do with who can build the bigger house, the prettier house, the more religious, um, pious house, the, the, have the most credibility. It's nothing. The, both houses were the same. One stood and one fell for one reason, what it was built on. So this is, this is what Jesus is, is teaching us. And this is why we have to understand his kingdom. So Matthew chapter 5, let's for the last time in this series, let's read these verses together again since the first week. We will read all 10 verses together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Just like the first beatitude, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I told you when we studied the very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That that was the first bookend. This is the last bookend. This is, this is a, a intentional use of words on Jesus' part to unify and put bookends on all of the Beatitudes because they are all a collective that have to be understood and applied all together. And the promise at the beginning and the promise at the end is that for those who exemplify, who 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 are given the, the ability to live and do these things through the power of the Holy Spirit, happy are they, and their reward is the kingdom of heaven. He says the ones who get it, the ones whose lives are exemplified by these things, they're the ones who get it, they're the ones who have received the kingdom, and they're the ones who will enter the kingdom on that day when judgment comes. So, this beatitude is unique to all the others because you notice that every other beatitude that we've studied describes the actions or the conduct of the blessed, the ones who are a part of the kingdom. How do they, how do they act? How do they respond? This last one doesn't describe the actions of the blessed. It describes the actions and conduct of others toward those who are blessed. This last beatitude isn't about what, what we do as kingdom people. It has to do with how do the people that are not a part of the kingdom respond to us as we are living out to the kingdom. So Jesus has outlined the path of those who come into the kingdom through all of these beatitudes, through all of the first seven, and when he ends it with the eighth one, what he says is that those who live faithfully and fulfill the first seven of those beatitudes will certainly also experience that eighth one. That if you live in faithful obedience to Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that your life exemplifies all of these things and that these beatitudes describe your coming to God and your, and your resting in God and your living in faithfulness to God, that this last beatitude at the end is a part of the package, that it can't be taken away. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Now, that word persecuted um, is, is an interesting word in the original language. It's, again, it's a combination of different words that are put together, um, but it, it's formed from a Greek word that means to pursue or put to flight. Or we might say to, to chase away. Um, the way it's used here, Jesus is talking about blessed are the ones who are harassed, the ones who are mistreated, the ones who suffer pain by the pursuit of other people. This is what Jesus is talking about. And when you try to think about the essence of what that word means, I thought about Westerns. And you know in a Western, you'll hear the phrase, run out of town, right? There's always somebody who's, everybody doesn't want in town and somebody comes to run them out. I think about um, the movie Tombstone. And Wyatt Earp and the Earp brothers come into Tombstone, right? They come to settle. They come to start a new life. But the cowboys, the, the gang, they don't want them there. 
and they want to run them out of town. So what do they do? They bring trouble. They bring trouble into their lives. They bring trouble into their family. They even murder one of the brothers in an effort to do what? To run them off, to get them to leave. Because we don't want you here. This is the idea of that word persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the ones that because of righteousness are pursued and harassed and abused and driven out by the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and this is, this is what he says to Timothy. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and suffering that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. But look at verse 12. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not an option, Smalls. This is what, this is what Peter is saying to Timothy, he says, if you want to live, everyone who pursues and desires to live a life fully obedient to Jesus will be persecuted. You can't escape it. The only way to escape persecution from the world is to live according to the world. If you don't want to be persecuted by the world, then just line up behind them. Just do what they do. Talk like they talk. Live like they live. Believe what they believe. You do those things and you're not going to have any trouble. But Jesus and, and Paul says, they're saying the same thing in the Beatitude and what Paul is saying. You want to you have an easy, not so much troubled life. You just line up behind them and you won't get any trouble from the world. But when you line up behind Jesus and righteousness and scripture which reveals to us what true righteousness looks like, and you stand on that, you will have people come against you. So get ready for it. Don't try to escape it. Don't, don't try to figure out a way to follow Jesus, but yet make everybody in the world happy with you. Paul says it won't happen, Timothy. And Jesus in this beatitude says it will not happen. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Do you know why you will always face persecution if you live in righteousness? Because righteousness is confrontational. There was a time in your life when you saw the righteousness of God and it confronted you with your sin. And by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit, you were confronted with God's righteousness and you chose to surrender to his righteousness. And to, and to give your life to him in obedience. But it's con righteousness is confrontational to all people. And to most of the world, when they see the righteousness of God, they reject it. And it makes them angry because it confronts them with their sin. And when you and I live lives of righteousness built on the, the truth of God's word, it will confront people with their sin and they will not like it and they will come against you. If we think about the confrontation of righteousness, think about in the Old Testament and the story of Cain and Abel. Sometimes we think, well, if I, if I just don't say anything, then I won't make people mad. When you read the story of Cain and Abel, do you notice that Abel never says a word to Cain about his sacrifice? It, we, we don't see any account in Genesis where Abel was preaching at Cain that when they would go and offer their sacrifice to God and God would reject Cain's offering, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that Abel went back to him and said, you know what, brother, you need to get your act together. God didn't accept your offering because it wasn't good enough and this is what's wrong in your life and this is the way, this is your misunderstanding about God and you need to fix this and you need to fix that and you need to get your life right with God. Like Abel, there's no record that he said anything to God. I mean, anything to Cain. All Abel did was faithfully follow God's command. 
do exactly, he did exactly what God asked him to do with the heart God asked him to do it with. And it incited such rage and anger and hatred in his brother that his brother killed him. And Abel didn't say, Abel didn't say a word. If we are living righteous lives in the world, we don't have to even preach to the world to make them mad at us. Just living it. Just obeying God, just being people of the kingdom will incite anger in the world because the righteousness they see in us, not, not, not just our words, of course they're going to get mad if we, if we confront them verbally with righteousness, but just, just living your life before the world will make people mad without saying a word. Because righteousness itself is confrontational. So here's the point. You can write in your notes for the note takers. To live a life obedient to Jesus is to invite and expect reaction and resentment from the world. This is, this is, Jesus ends with this because this is really important. He says, if you want to follow after me, all of you that are gathered here to hear about the kingdom that I've come to bring, you need to know that if you want to follow after me, you will be inviting trouble into your life. You will invite negative reaction from the world into your life. People will react to you poorly, they will resent you, and they will hate you. We have to know and expect rejection from the world. We shouldn't be surprised. We should be prepared for it. If we're going to live out what Jesus is teaching us to do in these Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount. If we claim to follow Jesus and we evaluate our lives and we say, I don't experience any opposition from any, any unsafe people or any system of the world, I never have anybody have any trouble with me ever. Everybody likes me. We're probably doing something wrong. If there's never any system of the world that's in opposition to your life and, and the way you live and the principles you stand for, then we probably should check our witness or check our heart. Because Jesus says, it's part of the life lived for me. Persecution will be. It will come. I want to try to help us understand and apply like this concept of, of persecution, and I want to do it a little different this morning. I've just picked three words. And so your, your outline or your notes this morning is just going to be three words. And they all start with the same letter. Aren't you proud? Um, but I want us to take these three words, and I want to explain what I mean by these three words. And each one of them will give us a little picture of, of what is this persecution Jesus is talking about, and how does it play itself out in our lives if, if we're living the kingdom life that Jesus is talking about here. So these are three words that will help us understand what this issue of persecution is about, all right? So here's number one. It's the word conditional. Number one is the word conditional. There's a conditional element to the persecution that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about any persecution that we might have. He's not only talking about, he, he doesn't say that all persecution is blessed because it's not. He's very specific. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Those are the ones who are blessed. There is persecution that we will endure because of righteousness in our life, but there is also a type of persecution that we will endure that's a result of unrighteousness in our life. And we need to be very careful not to confuse the two. Let me give you an example. If, if Kim, my wife, rejects me, kicks me out of my house, takes me to court, takes me for everything I have 
which isn't a lot, but she takes every bit of it. And I am left homeless, without a family, without, without any money, without anything. And I, I find myself destitute and alone and pitiful because I have cheated on her and I've been unfaithful in my marriage to her. I can't sit in my circumstances and cry persecution because that's not persecution. That's not persecution the way Jesus described it. I'm sitting in it. She has come against me and she's come against me hard. But it's not because of my righteousness. It's because of my unrighteousness because I've sinned against her and I've sinned against God. I deserve it. I deserve what I get. And so that's not persecution. That's not what Jesus means. He says, blessed are the ones who are persecuted because of righteousness. There are some people in the, Christ, in the church, big, big, big C, big church. There are some Christians who endure opposition and persecution from the world, but it's not because of righteousness. Sometimes the world does it, will come against Christians because Christians are jerks. Can I say that? The world will come against some Christians because Christians are jerks, because Christians are wrong, because they're living in sin, and they're living a life inconsistent with the kingdom of God, and they're mean. And if you're a Christian like that, who is, who is living an unrighteous life before the world, and the world comes against them and says, I don't like that, you don't, don't cry persecution. It's not that they don't like you because of Jesus. They don't like you because of you. <laughs> so be, be very clear here. Jesus isn't saying everybody who has somebody come against them is blessed. No. There's a specific demographic. The ones who, are, who, are, who have people come against them and who are persecuted because of righteousness, because the character of my kingdom is being lived out faithfully in their life and the world is being confronted with righteousness and they don't like it so they come against you, then you're blessed. But if people come against you, other Christians come against you just because you're disobedient and you're worldly and you're a jerk, that's not, that's not persecution. You're not part of the blessed. All right? So there's number one. It's, there's a conditional element. Number two is contrasting. There's a contrast to the type of persecution that Jesus is talking about. We will experience different types of persecution and various degrees of persecution depending on the context of our lives, where we find ourselves, and how obedient we're being to Jesus. Verse 11 in chapter 5. This is, this is an, we know this is an important beatitude because Jesus doesn't just stop talking about persecution with verse 10. He continues in verse 11 and 12 beyond the, the, the phrases that are actually what we call the Beatitudes. And he continues talking about persecution in verses 11 and 12. So look at verse 11. He says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. So there's that conditional element again. He says, sometimes people insult you because you do dumb things. <laughs> Because you deserve it. You deserve to be insulted. He says, but when they insult you and persecute you and lie about you because of me, then you're blessed. So there's different types of persecution. I, I have to admit that before I studied this and really started digging into this, when I would hear someone like an American, like somebody like us, when I would hear somebody talk about, oh, I'm being persecuted because somebody made fun of me. Or somebody, um, somebody insulted me because I was a Christian. I, I, have to be, I have to be honest. I was guilty of, of listening to that and in my mind going, Pfft. that's kind of wimpy. 
Like, you don't know what persecution is. There are, there are believers on the other side of the planet who are enduring persecution that we have never known. They are, they are meeting in churches together and in, in hiding underground because they know if they're found out, they'll be dragged out, taken to prison, and maybe even executed because of their faith. There are believers who are dying on the other side of the world every day because they're going into regions and people groups who have no idea who Jesus is and, and they are so hostile to the gospel that when you come in and start telling them about Jesus, they murder you. They're believers that are standing for the name of Jesus in other parts of the world that are living that kind of persecution. And so even when I would hear myself complain about things that people say to me, I would think, man, you're such a wimp complaining about that. You don't know what persecution is. But, but Jesus says here in verse 11, blessed are you when they insult you and falsely say any kind of evil against you. So there's, Jesus even says there's varying degrees and varying kinds of persecution. And if all of those are for righteousness, then, then we're rewarded for that. Like that, that counts to God, that Jesus, Jesus regards that. Um, he, he's not just talking about physical persecution, but we can see Jesus also includes verbal persecution. And we do know what that's like. We in America, we do understand what that kind of persecution is like because some of us have endured that kind of persecution. We live in America. And it used to be that living in America meant that you lived in a country that regarded the church, that, that revered the church or valued at least the, the positive effect that the church had on culture. But you and I both know it's not that way anymore. And what we see happening is some of us are old enough to remember even 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago when culture at least respected the church enough because it valued the, the contribution that the church made to culture. But what we're seeing is a shift. Rather than the world seeing us as a part of the solution to the bad things in the world, now the world is changing its view. Now we are the cause of the trouble. The church is quickly becoming part of the problem rather than a place where people can find solutions. This is the kind of persecution that we're seeing happening now. The way the world views the church, their, their, their distrust of the church, their desire to want to silence the church and anything that we do or say, that's real persecution. That, that falls into what Jesus is talking about here. We see it in culture. We see it in politics. As much as I love when I see a, a politician or, or a candidate that may be running for office be bold in their faith and talk about their relationship with God and talk about biblical values, I, I get so excited about that and, and absolutely I'm going to vote for somebody like that. But there's also a part of me that says they're not going to win. They're not going to win. You know why? Because this world doesn't like being confronted with righteousness. I'm not saying don't support them. I'm not saying don't rally around them and don't absolutely do that. We have to do that. But don't be surprised when they lose. Because this is the world we live in. Um, the media has silenced the influence of the church within, uh, within the media, within entertainment culture, within everything. Anybody who speaks out or decides that, that I'm going to go contrary to the system of the world and I'm going to at least just say, this is what I believe and what I believe is based on the righteous principles of the word of God, they're cut off. They're silenced, their voice is taken away, their jobs are taken away. Actors in Hollywood who decide they want to draw lines based on their convictions of righteousness that, that they get from God's word, when they decide, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be in these kind of shows, I don't want to act these, in these kind of scenes, I don't want to be affiliated with these kind of movements or people groups, they're shut down and they lose their jobs and they have no voice anymore. 
That, that qualifies as persecution. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 11. Um, we have to go forward in our lives understanding that we likely live in the most anti-Christian culture in the United States since the birth of our nation. What it used to be categorized as is a post-Christian culture. And that was a term that, that folks used in describing, you know, sociologists would say, this is a, this is, we live in a post-Christian culture. We no longer live in a post-Christian culture. Now we have moved into the anti-Christian culture. And this is where we live. And what Jesus is saying to us and what he's saying to the people on that hillside is this is a part of the deal now. Don't be fooled into thinking that there's a way you can escape it and still follow me. Because you can't. So there's contrasting forms of persecution that we will face. Some, some places in the world and, and some places that and maybe even instances that we may encounter. And folks, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that if Jesus delays his coming and he doesn't come back in the next several years, we may become a place where our lives are threatened because of our faith. Because it's not gonna get better. It's just not. Anybody that tells you there's this utopia coming and the kingdom of God is just going to bubble up in society until Jesus comes back, they're misinterpreting, I believe, what God's word says. It is not going to get better. It's just going to keep getting worse until Jesus says that's enough. So here's number three. Confirming. And this is, this is maybe my favorite one. Um, there is a confirmation in persecution. Look at verse 12 in Matthew 5. Jesus is still talking about it. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, if you are being persecuted, be happy about it. Don't whine about it. That's kind of what I read and what I hear Jesus say is, is Eric, if you are living your life for me and following and, and building your life on my, my example and on the principles that are in my word and somebody says something harsh against you or persecutes you in some way, don't whine about it. But I want to whine about it. You know why? Because those of you that know me more personally, you know that I'm the guy who can't stand for anybody to be mad at me. I, that's a personal struggle for me. This is part of the reason I didn't want to be a pastor. I, 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 I can't stand for somebody to be unhappy with me or, or mad at me about something. And so there is this, this part of me that even, even when the world like, gets angry, I want to be like, oh, I don't want you to be mad. And, and Jesus is going, no, don't whine about it. If it's because of righteousness, if it's because of me, be glad. He literally says, be glad and rejoice. Why? Not, because, not so much because of the circumstance. One, be glad that you're being set apart and there's an obvious difference because the world sees it. They're not going to come against you if they don't see it. So when they come against you, it's because they can see it in you. Be glad for that. Rejoice in that. But not just because of that. He says, rejoice because your reward later is great. It will pay off in the end. And you think about how does that, how could that play out in our lives today? When you are at your job one day and your employer comes to you and says, I need you to do this thing. And this thing that they ask you to do is unethical. It's immoral. And you know you know it's wrong. And they say, I need you to do this. And you decide to stand on the principles of righteousness that God has put in you through your salvation. And you say, you know what, I can't, I can't do that. And they say, well, if you don't do that, you're fired. And I'll make sure you never work 
anywhere around here again if you don't do what I tell you to do. How do you respond? What Jesus would say is when you stand in righteousness and say, well, I'm not going to do that. And if it means I'm fired, then I'm fired. And you walk away. Don't be upset about it. Be glad. Be glad when you experience persecution. You say, how can I be glad I lost my job? Jesus says, be glad when people come against you because of righteousness. I want to say this to like our teenagers and our students and even, even, even young people. When, you are, when you're in a relationship with somebody one day, and you have principles that you have established and a will for your life that God's word has laid out for you. And that person you're in a relationship with says, I want you to do this or I want to share this with you. And you say, I, I'm not going to do that or I don't want to do that. And they say, well, if you don't want to do that, then I don't want to be with you anymore. And they reject you because of your stand for righteousness. Remember what Jesus says here. Be glad. Don't worry about it. Move on. Because there's somebody else who will value that righteousness in you. Who will be pursuing the same righteousness that you're pursuing. Don't don't sacrifice it. Don't give up your righteousness. Don't give up the righteousness of God for the opinion or the love or the acceptance of whatever guy or girl's in your life in that moment. Does that make sense? When you experience rejection because of righteousness, Jesus says, be glad for it. When you're falsely accused because somebody doesn't like you and the only way they can figure out because your life is so righteous and, and like you, you try your best to follow, not that you're perfect, you try your best to do the right thing and there's nothing, that they, you know, accusation they can bring against you, Jesus says they will make up stuff. They will falsely accuse you. They will say things about you that aren't true. And he says when they say things about you and they lie about you to get you in trouble and get you out of the way, Jesus says be glad. Be happy about it because you know what? They see the difference and because you're standing on it. And he says, it will count. I will notice, I will pay attention, and there will be a reward for your faithfulness later. Dr. John MacArthur has said this, and I quote, to be prepared for kingdom life is to be prepared for loneliness, misunderstanding, ridicule, rejection, and unfair treatment of every sort. Jesus says, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, be prepared for it and know it's coming. And you say, well, why did you use that word confirming? Because you know the only people who are able to do that the only people on the planet who are able to expect that kind of persecution and rejection and, and be ready for it and walk through it and rejoice in the midst of it, it's only the ones who are blessed. It's only the ones who are part of the kingdom. If you're not a genuine follower of Jesus, you're not doing that. If you're not a genuine part of the kingdom, you know what you're going to do? You're going to fold. You're going to give up. You're going, to, you're going to jump in line behind the world because you can't stand that they've come against you. And you want to get out, of, get out of that circumstance so bad that you'll do whatever you got to do to line up to get them off your back. And Jesus says, those probably aren't the people who are really a part of my kingdom. The blessed are the ones who, who endure faithfully. Not by your power. Remember, all of these Beatitudes are like that. Not by your power, but the power of the Holy Spirit. My power in you to maintain your righteousness, to stay obedient, and to actually experience joy in the midst of persecution. So here's the last point you can write down. Persecution because of Christ is evidence of a true and faithful follower of Jesus. 
one of the tests that I believe are in scripture. One of the things that we can say is how do I know if I'm in the kingdom? How do I know if I'm really saved and living a life of obedience to God? I believe Paul and Jesus both would say, if the world doesn't like you, if you ruffle feathers, and if you make people uncomfortable, and people treat you unfairly and poorly, then you're one of mine. Because what did they do to me? Not just the apostles, not just the, the, the prophets who came before that Jesus talked about, but Jesus is our example. Look at what he did. And look at how the world responded. The question that I think we should ask ourselves this morning, I don't want you to misunderstand. I think maybe some of us might be prone to ask ourselves the question, how much persecution have I faced? And maybe we would think, the more persecution that I face, then the more faithful of a Christian I am. That's not necessarily true. Jesus uses the word when in that sentence, which what that means is, Persecution is not going to be a 24-7 thing in the life of a believer. There are going to be times when your life is, is happy and content and you're going to go through good times and you're not going to have people coming against you and there is going to be peace in your life. The question is not so much how much persecution have you endured. The question is how have you reacted when it has come? When persecution has come into your life and opposition has come, what do you do with it? How do you react? It, uh, remember, there's various degrees and kinds of persecution. It may be that some of us have experienced very little and minimal degrees of persecution, but yet it's still persecution. While some on the other side of the world have experienced the greatest degrees maybe of persecution. It's not so much about how bad has it been or how often does persecution come to you. The question we should be asking is when it comes, what do we do with it? How do we respond? We can be glad because Jesus makes the promise that our reward will be great in heaven. And the truth is that you won't often see the reward of enduring persecution faithfully in this life maybe sometimes you will sometimes you might have someone else to see your righteous endurance of persecution and it will encourage them and lead them to Jesus and you're aware of it and then you see that blessing there are circumstances where God rewards that faithfulness and lets you see it in this life but the promise Jesus specifically makes here is that in the life to come when I establish my kingdom finally, then there'll be great reward for it. It will be worth it. Mark chapter 10, I want you to see something that Jesus says to the disciples when they're talking to him and he's, and he's talking about the kingdom and Peter just kind of speaks up here in, in Mark 10 and he says, Jesus, we've left everything for you. We've left our homes and our jobs and our families. We've, we've left everything for you. Almost as if Peter is asking, Jesus, is it going to be worth it? Like, what, what's the end going to be like? Because we've, we've done this because we believe you. And Jesus says in, in chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. Houses, brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. You say, well, what is Jesus talking about there? What he's saying is that the blessed are willing to deal with the persecution and sacrifice of anything in their lives because they know in the end everything will be given back to them. Jesus says the ones who endure, Peter says, Jesus, what, what's gonna happen? We've left everything for you. And he says, Peter, don't you think that you've sacrificed anything in this world that in the end, because of your faithfulness, it won't be given back to you? 
And so the blessed and the Beatitudes can face persecution. We can face trouble in the world. We can face the opposition of the world. And we can, we can say, you know what? I can endure anything that you dish out because I know everything will be given back to me in the end by my good and perfect Savior. He will restore all of it. When we were singing this morning, you know how when you're worshiping and you're singing the songs, even the songs you're really familiar with, and just depending on where you are in that moment or where your life is, maybe one line or one lyric in a song just, just kind of smacks you and it, and it creates emotion in you maybe because that line just becomes really real this morning as we were worshiping. At 8.30, and again, I was thinking about it even more at 11 o'clock. And be still my soul. I love to hear Nicole sing, be still my soul. And there's a line in that song that says, love's purest joys restored. This is the reward. God blesses us with a lot of joy in our life, doesn't he? And you can think, but the joy that we experience now in this life is mixed with a lot of trouble. And it's mixed with a lot of pain and grief and heartache and hurt. But yet God, because he's graceful, he still gives us the, 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 the privilege of experiencing joy. But can you imagine when the kingdom comes in the end? And we and we're a part of the kingdom because of the righteousness of Jesus that's been given to us. Can you imagine living in a world of pure joy? Love's purest joys restored. To wake up in the morning and to live your life on this earth in the presence of God with nothing to contaminate your joy. That's the promise. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the great reward that Jesus is talking about. So if we keep our eyes fixed on that, we can endure a little trouble from the world. We can take their words. We can take their abuse. Because God will restore the pureness of our joy in the end. Hmm.